2 Samuel chapter 11, a lot of ground to cover this morning, the time that we have. Uh, You're going to see a picture on the screen of my precious little girl. She's not so little anymore. This is the picture on your left is my absolute favorite picture of Brie. It's my favorite picture. I remember that picture. She was just a little over one, and we were at at the mall, and at the play place, you know, where kids play, and, and she was trying to keep up with her brother. She's still trying to do that, by the way. Wherever he goes, she wants to go. Whatever he's up to, she wants to be up to. But, but she was just having a great time. She just enjoyed, she was walking by then, and, and she just enjoyed being able just to run and just play, be a toddler, right? And then the picture um, next to that is one of us recently, one of my favorites as well, and I love her. She's very delightful. She's a father's gift. She's a father's dream. She's just a pleasant, lovely, wonderful young woman. I love my daughter. Uh, I, you know, her her room is right across from the office that Lori and I share at home. And I frequently go in there early in the morning when I get up. She's sound asleep. I'll go in just to make sure that she's warm and comfortable and make sure the blankets are pulled up, and I'll always try and just kneel down and just give her a little smooch on the cheek, and she won't wake up, but she'll just smile usually, like she knows I was there, and then she'll go, Dad, were you in my room this morning? She'll come back later. It's like, no, why would I ever do that? Right? But when she was a little girl, uh, one of the things that she hated was she hated to get in trouble, like so much so that she would actually lie because she hated to get in trouble. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but she did something and it warranted a conversation with me. And so we sat down at the table across from each other and I began to ask her a series of questions. I knew that she had done this thing, whatever it was. And, and I remember she looked me right in the face and she lied. And I kept asking more questions and she would manufacture more lies. And she was, I mean, she was dead serious. And just so you know, I did get her permission to share this, just so you you know. (laughs) And I remember one of the questions that I thought to myself was, how could something so beautiful do something so ugly? The truth is, despite appearances, People are capable of the worst. This is true. Including the guy that stands before you right now. I am capable of the absolute worst. If there is a chapter in the Word of God that proves this, it's the chapter that we're in right now, 2 Samuel chapter 11. David has already proved some things, right? He's already proved that he's capable of adultery. He's already proved that. In the preceding chapters, though, we have observed a a number of glowing things about him, didn't we? Wonderful things. Like eulogizing the deaths of not just Jonathan, that one made sense, but to eulogize Saul and to lead the nation in genuinely mourning for a man who had caused him so much grief, agony, and pain, and We see him waiting on the Lord before acting. We see him 
seeking peace in the kingdom instead of war and division. We see him mourn the deaths of other enemies, Abner and Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, as I say, but Brandon corrects me. Um, we see him leaping and dancing before the Lord when the ark is brought into the city. We see the amazing prayer of gratitude that he expressed to the Lord after God gave him the coming. These are all wonderful things. And then, of course, the kindness that he shows to Mephibosheth. I mean, at one point we read that whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. And I can say that every leader would go, man, show me how you did that. How'd you please everybody? Because I've been told that you can't make everybody happy. At one point, David did. So I want to know how he did that. <laughs> I need to keep reading. Maybe I'll figure it out. But it is so hard to imagine that that man that we just talked about, all those glowing things, is the same man here in chapter 11. It's the same man. And the man that we see here in chapter 11 was capable of the worst. He was capable of the worst. And while the details are both dark and disturbing, there's another episode that will be darker and more disturbing. That is yet to come. But listen, I tremble. I do. I tremble at the thought of God not having the undivided attention of every man in this room, every man in this fellowship. I tremble if God does not have your undivided attention in this chapter. I tremble at that. And here's why God has my attention the way that he does in this chapter. If King David, a man who was after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, if King David was capable of these things, who am I <laughs> to think that I'm not? Who am I? But that brings me to point out a blind spot that I do believe a lot of believers have, and it is this. Many believers are aware of what others are capable of, but they are unaware of what they are capable of. This is a blind spot that I think a lot of people have. Listen, if you do not believe that you are capable of the worst, I've got some shocking news for you. You are going to find out that you are. Just ask Simon Peter. Right? He did not believe he was capable of denying the Lord three times. He told Jesus that. But he absolutely was. This is one of the fatal flaws of those who are very critical of others. They will take a posture of self-righteous disgust at the fallings and failings of others. Like, oh my gosh, that's, that's so awful. How could someone do such a heinous thing? And, and then here we go. They will think or even utter, I could never do that. Really? You could never do that, huh? What do you think you're made of? You're made of the same stuff that the person who just did this heinous thing, you're made of the same stuff that they are. You have the same carnal propensities to do that thing that they just did. Be careful. 
You've got to know what you're capable of. This was something that we had to deliberately address in, in training uh, and parenting our children. You know, th- these are kids who, you know, praise the Lord, they don't have the testimony of coming to the Lord out of drunkenness and fornication and reveling and all of that. But here's what that tempts them to do. It tempts them to be self-righteous. I don't have that testimony. I, I, <laughs> I didn't do those things, and I was never that bad. No, you were just as bad, and you are just as bad in the flesh. Just because your father is a pastor doesn't exempt you from the same carnal realities of every human being. You can fall. Be very, very careful. If there's one thing that I learned from spending 22 years in the world before I came to faith in Christ, and, and I continue to recognize this about myself, is that I am capable of the absolute worst. I have it in me, carnally speaking, to do the darkest of the darkest. With that said, let's consider what men are capable of, starting in verse 6. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. Now, what is so remarkable about what we just read, in my estimation, is that this follows what we read in verse 5. So what we're getting here is David's immediate response to verse 5. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. What's so very interesting about this chapter, if you read it and you study it, is you realize that God's name is only mentioned one time in the last verse of this chapter. You don't see his name mentioned directly throughout the chapter until the last verse, but to think that he was not involved would be a massive oversight because he would have been behind the men who gave David that piercing truth about who this woman was, whose wife she belonged to, whose daughter she was, whose granddaughter she was. I know that because they told him the truth. God would have been behind the message that Bathsheba sent saying, I am with child. How do I know that? Because that was the truth. God only deals in truth. It's important for us to know this. If you're going to deal with God, if God's going to deal with you, God will only deal with you from here. This is the only way that God deals with anyone. God doesn't deal with us based on our intellect or our feelings or our circumstances. God only deals in truth every single time. But David continued to ignore truth and instead of falling to his face in confession and repentance. Oh no. He puts into motion a plan to cover the tracks of his sin. And as we read about it, we 
or if we keep reading about it, we see a man who, listen, who was confident in his ability to deal with this. Again, his confidence was misplaced. We talked about this. But he's confident he can deal with this. Listen, he, he was the king. He was in control. He's got this. He's got a plan. He can fix this. He's the man. And because God seems silent and idle regarding all of this, he foolishly concluded that God was going to allow him to exercise his executive privilege and deal with this. God hasn't stopped me. God hasn't struck me down. God hasn't judged me. I mean, it's, I got it. But here's what he demonstrated that men are capable of. Men are capable of deeply betraying others. We're all capable of this. When Uriah was pulled from the battlefield to meet with the king, he would have absolutely assumed that it had to have been for urgent business. I mean, think about it. You're Uriah, you're a mighty man, you're on the battlefield, you're doing what you're supposed to do, and the king has sent for you to pull you from the battlefield. I can only imagine some of the things that would have been going through his head. Is there something wrong with Bathsheba? Did she die or is she seriously ill? If not that, is is there a, a matter in the kingdom that is so urgent that the king felt like he needed me off the battlefield to tend to that? I mean, why else would the king be pulling me from the battlefield to bring me back to Jerusalem? It's got to be for a valid reason. No, uh, Uriah, um, you know, everything is just fine. Bathsheba is fine, and everything in the kingdom is just fine. David knew the kind of man that Uriah was. He was a man of high character. David knew that Uriah initially would not have thought anything suspicious of anything. Again, he would have thought that there's something going on that says that I need to be in Jerusalem as opposed to being in Rabbah. No, uh, Uriah, brother, everything's good. I, I just wanted to see how Joab was doing in terms of leading the battle and, and just how the war is going. That would have seemed strange. Like, you're the king. If you wanted a report on the battle, you could have just sent someone to get that report and bring it back to you. Why would you pull a mighty man, a valiant warrior, off the battlefield? A man who is fighting to defend your honor and fighting to accomplish your cause. Why would you pull that man off the battlefield to give you a report? This is not adding up. The truth was, it was all a lie. David had betrayed Uriah. He had betrayed Eliam. He had betrayed Ahithophel. He had betrayed Bathsheba. He had betrayed the kingdom. And in verse 8, the master plan for the cover-up was revealed. And David said to Uriah, go down to thy house and wash thy feet. So, Uriah, I'm going to give you all this food for you to go home and refresh yourself and most importantly, enjoy your beautiful bride. 
Uriah and others would think nothing of Bathsheba's pregnancy had that happened. But listen, even if that plan worked, it still had holes in it. What if Uriah went home and sensed that something was off? Like, <laughs> praise the Lord, I, I, I can't tell you what this is like, but I can only imagine how a spouse tries to manage their conscience in the presence of their spouse when they've crossed the line of adultery. How do you do that? How do you look your spouse in the eyes? How, how do you have a conversation? How do you, how, how do you just spend five minutes with them? It, I would imagine it would eat you alive. You've crossed that line. If not that, what if at the moment he walked in, uh, she just said, listen, I mean, she's weeping. I got to tell you what happened. Here's what he did. He sent for me. I don't know. I was at home one day and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and, and there's 25, 30 soldiers and they're telling me that I have to go to the king and I go, I don't know why. And then next thing I know, here it is. I mean, you weren't here. I was so afraid. I mean... Okay, even if he was intimate with Bathsheba, and there still would have been people who would have known. Like, it's not hard to do the math. If you're part of the group that was sent to retrieve her, and then you know her husband wasn't there, I mean, trust me, Uriah was a mighty man. These messengers would have known exactly who he was. What about her neighbors? I mean, this, 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 this plan has holes in it, but listen... When a man, listen, <laughs> when a man is not walking with God, he is capable of betraying the people who love him so deeply this way. This is what I'm saying. You and I are capable of the absolute worst. You know what terrifies me about me? What terrifies me about me is at the moment at which I choose to not walk with the Lord. I'm capable of the worst in that season. This is one of the, this is one of the gambles that I think we, uh, we, we take. This is how we roll the dice. We take days off, don't we? We take seasons off, don't we? Right? Just, man, life's busy. I'm just not up for it. I just don't feel like spending time with the Lord. I don't feel like praying. I, I really don't feel like walking with the Lord. I... I'm just going to take a stroll. I'm going to tell you, you might take days off, but the world, the flesh, and the devil never do. Amen. They don't take any days off. How about John 13, 2? And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's Jesus. Listen very carefully. The devil did not put anything in the heart of Judas that Judas did not welcome. He was complicit in that whole thing. 2 Timothy 1.15, thou knowest, this thou knowest, 
that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom Phagellus and Homogenes. This is the only two mention of these men in Scripture. We're not given anything beyond this, but the fact that Paul would mention them by name would indicate that these were well-known leaders that was known to the church. They turned away from him. 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica and Crescens, to Galatia, Titus, unto Dalmatia. At one point, Demas was a trusted man with the Apostle Paul in ministry. A co-laborer. And there are more examples. So this is very, very important. Please, brothers, I invite you to hear this. The roles of husband, father, and leader are positions of trust. These are positions of trust. They are. And that brings me to this, brothers. The deepest betrayal in marriage is actually not adultery. The deepest betrayal in parenting or in fatherhood is not neglect. The deepest betrayal in ministry is not unfaithfulness. Listen, the deepest betrayal by a man, listen, is not being a godly man. That's the deepest betrayal. Because when a man is not godly, that's when adultery is an option. That's when neglect as a father is an option. That's when unfaithfulness and ministry is an option. That's when the darkest of the darkest is an option. It's because you're not godly. And so when you're not godly, guess what your options become? Your options become what? Ungodly. This is huge. When a man is ungodly, he will betray those closest to him. How can he not? People tend to laugh when I talk about the conversation or conversations that I'll have with uh, my daughter's future husband. And uh, I get it. It doesn't bother me. I understand it. You know, I think people envision me cleaning a shotgun or something like that. It, it, it won't be that rough. Uh, but he should probably be a little uncomfortable. Uh, we'll sit across from each other, man to man. We'll have a very direct uh, conversation. We will. And he'll need to understand that her father, her brother, and her pastors and teachers have provided for her a blueprint of what a man is. That, that's, that's her blueprint. That's, that, that's what manhood looks like to her. That, that, that's what a Christian man looks like to her. That's what a, a godly husband and a godly father and, and I mean, that, that's what it looks like to her. That said, you, you, you might put her in a million-dollar home. 
She might drive the nicest car in Kansas City. She might have the most wonderful wardrobe in the city. But if you are not leading her in the Lord, if you are not leading her children in the Lord, it will be the deepest betrayal. And the conversation has been had with my son, and it continues to be reinforced. That he can make all the money in the world, and he can provide things for his family that I never provided. I'm very proud of him right now. I'm proud of the choices that he's making. I'm, I'm, we've had the conversation that you, you've got to decide what, what, what kind of life you want to have for your family, and then you've got to make decisions to accomplish that. And he's doing that quite nicely. I think if he continues in the path that he's continuing on, he'll do very well in that regard. He'll be able to take care of his family and support his local church, and he's been trained to do that. However, if his family is lukewarm for the Lord, he will have betrayed them greatly, and he will have failed miserably as a man, and I will let him know that. Brothers, if you are not a godly man, listen, you are capable of betraying your wife, your children, and this church. Deeply betraying all of those people. It is so dangerous to not be godly, brothers. We continue in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down into his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then dost thou not go down into thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Let me just say, you know, one of the things that, and I've probably said this before, but uh, one of the things that you, you learn in life and ministry is that there are really two kinds of people. There are people that you get to walk and work with, and there are people that you have to. Uriah was the kind of man that you got to walk and work with. This guy was a man. Uriah was the kind of guy that if you were walking with him and if you were serving the Lord in the battlefield with Uriah, it's like, man, I love this guy. This guy is the real deal, man. Godly. A man of high character and integrity. Faithful, loyal, dedicated, unflappable, trustworthy. I mean, this guy is it, man. I mean, he was the kind of guy when you saw Uriah coming, and it was kind of like, I always tell John, like, John is, John is so refreshing to me. Like, I, I love John. Like, I, I, it, just, it doesn't matter, right? When I see John, like, my heart is just, I'm good. I, I just see John. Like, I just, he's so refreshing that way. Right? He's a guy, and I can go around this room and say that, but I just, 
things just sitting here just came to mind. But I just, over the years, I've just, I always tell John, he says, I love you. I say, bro, I love you more. And we go back and forth about who loves each other. I, like, I, I just, like, there are just guys like that that you just go, thank you, God, that I get to know this man. I get to walk with this man. And I get to serve the Lord with this brother. Thank you, Lord. Keith's that way. Just every time has a word of encouragement, a supporting word, a hug. I love you. I appreciate you. It's just, 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 man, that was Uriah. He was that kind of guy. But David's plan was already unraveling, wasn't it? This is not going according to plan. Bro, why aren't you going home? <laughs> Here's what he missed. Uriah was not only a mighty man, but he was also a godly man. It wasn't just that this guy could get it done on the battlefield. That was outward. But he was as valiant and as manly inwardly. He was godly. Remember, his name means light of Jehovah. And listen, make no mistake about it. Uriah got the message from David. He did. He knew that part of the reason that David was sending him home was to be with his wife. He said it. (laughs) He knew it. It's very interesting to consider just how different these two men were at this point. David and Uriah. David, in total peace and comfort, could not resist himself from Bathsheba. Uriah being pulled fresh off the battlefield. (laughs) Combat zone resisted going home to refresh himself and be with his wife. Two different men. What was the difference? It's very simple. At this point, one was godly, one was not. That's very evident in verse 11. If you look at that again, because Uriah's point was, if the ark of God doesn't have a home, if Joab and my fellow soldiers, if, if, if they're camping in the dirt, who am I to go home and enjoy the comforts of home? An ungodly man would have said, King, you're my guy. Thanks for looking out for me, man. Really appreciate it. Man, what a spread. I'm out of here. Uh, Let me know if you want me to go back, but I'm gone. Not Uriah. He was a godly man. Again, God's name is only mentioned once in this chapter, but was he not speaking through Uriah here in verse 11? No doubt. No doubt. The problem was David was not listening. Look at verse 12. And David said to Uriah, tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And that even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. What a man. What a man. Listen, men are also capable of intentionally enticing others. 
We are capable of this. As one of David's mighty men, Uriah would have had enough history with David to know something was off. He may not have known the extent of it, but something's off. Things are not adding up. There's just not. That'd be like, uh, you know, Todd and I grabbing lunch, and, uh, which we're overdue for. And, uh, and we're sitting down, and, and Todd just starts using very coarse language and, and trying to entice me to cross lines and send. I, I've got enough history with Todd to know that's not Todd. Like, what's, what's up, man? Like, what, what are we doing here? I mean, think about it. Uriah, I mean, he, he had history. He knew. What is up? But David abused his power, which we'll see more about that, but... He abused his power by enticing Uriah to drink excessively, believing this will get him home. Surely this will get him home. But even in a drunken state, Uriah, his integrity, his character, his convictions were so great that he would not go home. And listen, for those who would be or would take an adamant position that Bathsheba was complicit in all this, let me just see if verse 13 will change that just a little bit because remember, Uriah was a mighty man. Uriah was a godly man, but he could only resist the king to a point. To a point. However David did it, he made sure the wine kept flowing. Man, bring me another glass. You like that, don't you? Hey, one more. Let's keep, keep this thing going, brother. Listen, man, one of the reasons I brought you back is just to tell you how much you mean to me. Like I was just sitting around thinking about, man, I've, I've got all this and I've got my brother Uriah. And man, just, I just, how do I show this man how much it means to me? Bring me another glass. What's Uriah to do? Is he... Is he going to refuse the king's hospitality? Imagine. This was a man of honor. He wanted to honor his king. Why? Which is why he wouldn't go home. In his mind, that would have dishonored his king. So if David could entice a mighty man to get drunk, how hard would it have been for him to entice a woman into adultery? Uriah was not soft. This was a man's man. But this happens in church. Proverbs 1.10, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Obviously, this verse has in view the believer being enticed by the loss. I get that. But let me ask you this. Was David not playing the role of sinner here? He absolutely was. Enticing this man to drunkenness. And believers are more than capable of this. David enticed Bathsheba to sin. He enticed her husband to get drunk. And before this is over, he's going to entice Joab to murder. Let me just give you a few examples of how this plays out in church. Matthew 18, 15. 
Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him. And would you say this word with me? Alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. How many issues in the church would be resolved if we just did that? That's not how it goes down, is it? No, what happens so many times is someone gets hurt. And instead of going to the person that they believe hurt them, they go to others who were not a part of it. And they entice others to participate in conversations with them about this person and about this matter. And those conversations take a dark turn, don't they? Where now people start piling on. And yeah, let me tell you what he did to me. And, and, and five years ago, he, he, he said this and, and, and you won't believe this. And what happened to going to him alone? So now we're enticing someone to grieve the Spirit of God. How about this? Philippians 4, 5, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Modesty is a lost virtue in our world today, in our country today, in this city today. We've trained our daughter that she is to dress for the Lord. And she used to be very careful to not allow herself to become a source of temptation to her brothers in Christ. Uh, she has been taught, she has been trained that there are features of her body that are for the eyes of her future husband only in private. There are features of her body that are not for the world to see. They are reserved for her husband, but women in the church today can entice their brothers to sin, how? By dressing provocatively. Believers can entice believers, believe me. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. So often we think about, oh, this is happening out there. That's what he's talking about. And yeah, this is happening in the church in America. It's Laodicea's lukewarm. You're right, it does happen out there, but please hear me, it happens in here too. MBT is not bulletproof as it relates to sin. Fornication is something that we have to deal with here too. I know what the Bible says about this, baby, but we love each other. And you know what? We're going to get married anyway. Why not? It'll be fine. God is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God of love. We'll be good. Just this one time. Hmm. And there are many more examples that we could consider, but what we're clearly seeing this morning is not only what David was capable of, but what you are capable of. What I am capable of. 
Let me close with this. Godly men are deeply loyal to others and they are repulsed by the thought of causing others to stumble spiritually. My question to you, brothers, are you such a man? Are you such a man where you are deeply loyal to your wife, to your children, to your brothers and sisters in this church? Deeply loyal. And that you are repulsed at the very thought of saying or doing anything that would entice them to stumble. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David was not such a man. He was not. Lord, thank you for what we've seen this morning. There's so much more to see, but uh, this was a, a good place to put a pen in it. Lord, may we as brothers, may we take this question that we close with and, and let us think on it. God, let us be the kind of man that we're deeply loyal. That God, we would never betray our wives, our children, the brethren. And that God, we are nauseated at the very thought of doing or saying anything that would tempt them to stumble. Let us be that kind of man. In Jesus' name, amen.